The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture today is from Ecclesiastes 4. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who had not yet been and has not seen all the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all that toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Better a poor was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lee. Well, one thing, uh, just a reminder today, uh, this Sunday is our uh, Volunteer Appreciation Sunday. We're having a lunch. If you have served in uh, helping and volunteering in any, in any capacity uh, with us here at Christ Presbyterian Church in town, uh, we have a, a pizza uh, party at DeSano's. If you haven't been to DeSano's, you need to go to DeSano's with us. Uh, it's a great one. So I'd love to have you there and, and celebrate and thank you for that. Well, I, uh, I remember distinctly um, when I was a kid, the moment when I realized um, that I was comparing myself with those around me. It was interesting because when I was in elementary school, there was, a, a, there was this uh, kind of uh, um, trial, so to speak, of, you know, those little, like, how can you broad jump and how can you do all those things, you know, like, remember you did all those little tests as a kid, okay, we're going to do these in elementary school and little things, now it's probably a lot more than that. But I remember there was one in particular, it wasn't how many pull-ups you could do, but, but you could go to this, you, how, how long could you hang on to a bar? like this. And it was, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it was like, that's one of the tests as an elementary kid. It was like, how long can you hold on to this bar like this? 
And I remember distinctly going, man, the first time we did it, and we're going to do it again later, um, trying it and going, oh, man, I didn't do as well. There's this other, this one other kid that just always, he was smaller than me, and he could just hang on that bar like he was a bird or a squirrel hanging for his life, and he'd just hang there. And I was like, man, I'm going to beat this kid. And so I remember going up to the elementary school by myself, by myself, and going up to the bar and just practicing, hanging there like this, this little element. I'm sure people driving by are like, what is wrong with this child? No parents around. There I am just hanging onto a bar. Like, does he know he can drop off of it? You know, like there I am. Day comes. Here it is. Time for me to, to, to ante up and do it. I jump up there and I go, I hang on as tight as I can. Like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to beat this kid up. Oh, I jumped down, you know, just hit the limit of my strength. And of course I don't beat him, you know? There's no way. All that work for that. And I remember that. That's, that's such a, a defining moment for me, not just as a, an athlete, as a student, as a person, because I just remember going, man, I want to be better than him. I want to be the best. I want to be the best. Like, I don't want to be second. And, and, and that's just been a pervasive thing for me. And I'm sure... It has been for you. Because when it comes to this question of comparison as the thief of joy, that is it. It is the thing. We want to be the best. And here's where it comes in interesting is we see people that are better than us. We see people that are not as good as us. And we are always doing that game, that one up, one down game. Where do I fit in there? It could be our appearance. It could be where our kids go to school. I was sitting at a basketball game of my sons watching them lose and sitting there going, man, I'm comparing that. And then I'm looking across the gym at the other team and seeing if they're winning or losing. Because I was thinking, wow, how, how bad? What, is this that bad? Like, how bad is it? What is that bad? How, is, that, is that that bad? Like, is this normal? <laughs> my heart just does that. Our hearts are bent towards comparison. And sometimes comparison can be helpful. But most of the time we take comparison and we twist it and we make it something where we can feel better about ourselves over and above someone else. And we utilize that. There was an article written some time ago by Lauren Slattery. Maybe you've read this, maybe you've heard this article. It's not necessarily new, but it, it is very pervasive even today. Called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And she essentially says this, this all makes so much sense that we have not thought, uh, thought to question it. The less confidence you have, the worse you do. The more confidence you have, the better you do, right? And so the luminous loop goes round and round. Based on our beliefs, we have created self-esteem programs in schools in which the main objective is, as Jennifer Kuhn-Wallman, a psychotherapist based in Boston says, to dole out huge helpings of praise regardless of actual accomplishment. We have a national association for self-esteem with about a thousand members, and in 1986, the state legislature of California founded the California Task Force to promote self-esteem and personal and social responsibility. It was galvanized by Assemblyman John uh, Vasc, I don't even know how you say his name, Vasconolonis, who fervently believed that by raising his citizens' self-concepts, he could divert drug abuse and all sorts of other social ills. It didn't work, she said. 
In fact, crime rates and substance abuse rates are formidable and have gone up right along with our self-assessment scores and paper and pencil tests. Essentially, she goes on to say that we tend to think that self-esteem, whether it's good or ill, is gonna make a difference. But listen to what she finishes by saying. In this case, to consider the unexpected notion that self-esteem is overrated and to suggest that it may even be a culprit is not a cure. That we can think highly of ourselves, we can think low of ourselves. What is, the, what is the cure? How do we handle that? What do we do? Because when it comes to comparison, that's what we do. We, we tend to lean towards where do we fit in? How do we find worth? We make that connection of care, comparison with worth and who we really are. And there's nothing better than what I think in Ecclesiastes, which is a book that constantly this preacher, who is probably Solomon, is unfolding and unveiling his heart before us in reality. You know, different than Proverbs, as we said, it's not so much of a statement of fact, it's more of his actual biographical unveiling. He's saying, I've tried this, I've seen this, I've seen what it does, I've encountered it, it is me. I have reached the top, I have been the wisest, I have been the best, and yet, I find this in my heart. So here's the question that draws up for us as it does for him. What drives you? What comparison drives you? What what is it in your heart that you go, if I could just be the best at this, or just better than this person at that, maybe there's that person, that particular person that reminds you that you stalk on social media, or that you see in Nashville, that reminds you of something that you cannot stand about yourself, but if you could rise above, then you would be fine. Would that be? Is that the case? The preacher tells us this in this passage, I think. He, he unfolds these two things, the destruction of envy and what it attaches itself to. But he also talks about how are we healed by envy? How are we healed in it, right? What, what destroys the envy itself? As you look in this passage, he even begins, and I want to actually flip back and forth between a few passages because this topic is all through the Bible. It's not particularly here in just Ecclesiastes, obviously. In Proverbs 14.30, it talks about this, that envy rots in our bones. Listen to this passage. It says this, a twang, tranquil heart gives life to flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. I think it's interesting to begin there because it's saying to us that envy is quiet. It's not a loud presence. It's something that creeps in. It's different than other things. It attaches itself like a parasite to things that could bring normal joy to us and creates from them a taskmaster. Something that that creeps in that, that you may not say it, but you see it. And it fills your heart and it fills your soul and you long for that thing. It's wrought because it's an unseen, powerful thing. And our culture lives off that. It lives off what we see. It lives off somewhat of those still quiet moments. Now, it could be loud in terms of a commercial. 
It could be loud in terms of things that we see and bustling around us, but the effects of it are quieted in our hearts, and they, but we feel them. They twinge in us, and it moves in us in ways that we, we don't know quite how to get out of it. There's a documentary that was on PBS <clears throat> um, called Merchants of Cool, which I thought was really interesting. It was talking about how advertising really plays into this idea of our envy, our need for this. It was talking about kids in particular, but I think that if, if, as you read it, it really expands from that into our greater culture. So as kids feel frightened and lonely today, it's because they're encouraged to feel that way. Advertising has, off, all, uh, advertising has always sold anxiety and is certainly sells anxiety to the young. It's always telling them that they are not thin enough, they are not pretty enough, they don't have enough of the right friends, or they don't have any friends. They're creeps, they're losers, or they're cool. They need this thing to make them better. But I don't think anyone deep down really feels cool enough ever. That's the nature of advertising. It keeps you hungering for more of the stuff that's supposed to finally, supposed to finally put you there, but it never does. It's so thoroughly about being on display. It's about how you look. We all imagine a million cameras facing us and recording everything. There's this acute self-consciousness that constitutes a tremendous psychological burden because you can never really feel like you're alone with yourself. You can never really feel like someone's not overhearing what you're thinking. That is really such a part of our culture. And it's not blaming the ad, you know, many of you may even be in the ad culture. Maybe that is your profession. It's not blaming advertising for that. It's just simply mining out what's there. It's showing us what we always long for, the thing we never have and we always want. But if I had it, it would make it right. And it quickly in this passage, he goes to that. He moves in verse four where he saw, sees that, that all this work, all toil and skill come from man's envy of his neighbor. And you see how it plays out. Even at the beginning, it ruins leadership. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressed, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. He says that twice. Envy can ruin leadership. It gets into places of comparison and where, where we think we need to be a certain kind of person. So we oppress, we put others down in order to make ourselves, our business, our work, our children, our life better than those around us. This is why gossip attaches itself to envy. Gossip is the words of coming out about somebody else to make us in comparison to them better. Gossip helps us do that. But envy is that heart, it's that deep part of us where we compare ourselves, we say, and we do this and it's the oppressed. It's interesting that he begins that way. He talks about those who are oppressed, pushed down. Isn't that how, when he goes even biblically, when it talks about the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, those who are aliens, those who are poor, those who are in disadvantaged places, that we oftentimes, yes, may have a heart to help them, but we oftentimes look at them and say, I'm so glad I'm not them. And isn't that where oppression works? 
It doesn't just work by oppressing them down. It works by us separating ourselves so much. In comparison, it is that part. And we have to look at that. I have to say this to you and to me because our city is full of that. Our city is full of people. This is one of the the top 10 cities of, of, of sex trafficking in our country. We have so many people who are disadvantaged and poor in this city. We think we're not even that big of a city. We're growing, but we are, have so much going on here that we just are so grateful sometimes that we are just not in that place. And sometimes we even use religious language to separate ourselves, like we're blessed. And yes, we may be. But if that keeps us from leaning in and loving those who are oppressed, then are we, are we learning the gospel? Are we learning that the good news came to us who are oppressed? Do we understand that? It's not a social movement. It's asking about what is your heart? How do you separate yourself? And this is the beginnings of what happens. We wonder what happens in big things. We see corporations fall, massive things topple down. And we wonder where it comes from. It begins not just by one person doing a big thing. It begins by the small moments of comparison and envy within the higher systems. And don't you think that happens in our families, in our homes, in our friendships, all of us? Do we know what's going on? He begins with leadership. How are we leading those around us? Not just in our jobs, but all around us with the way that we deal with comparison. comparison. I love how C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis is a, a British writer, if you're unfamiliar with him, and he wrote things so beautifully. Listen to what he says. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being about the rest. It's how we cling to those things that normally would produce normal joy, things that we could give out, our riches. Maybe, maybe it is some sort of beauty. Maybe there are things that can produce such rich things, but envy attaches itself. And we begin to utilize that in comparison to see how we make ourselves better. There's such a great biblical model of this. A famous character named David. Many of you may have known that name from the Bible. But the king that was before King David was Saul. And as David was coming into his, you know, major taking of the throne, David defeats this massive enemy named Goliath, David and Goliath. And right after that, as they're going back to the city after this great victory, there's a chant that happens in the Bible. And it says, Saul has slain the king that was before. Saul, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his 10,000s. And immediately you begin to see the work of envy in his leadership. The work of envy and comparison. It, so much so, he tries to kill David physically, literally. And many of us in this room may not 
seek to kill the person literally or physically, but in our hearts, isn't that where murder comes from? We see that person that reminds us of how we are less or lack, and we seek to remove them. Do you see how envy attaches itself to so much? It's so scary. And the oppressor is always moving, by the way. I had a a good friend, he's a pastor here in town, who studied oppressive theology, oppression theology at, uh, across the street at Vanderbilt. One of the things he, he realized as he was studying this at the divinity school was that he was realizing that there's always an oppressor. Once you take down an oppressor, there's always another one right after. There's always something else that is to oppress. What is that? It's a moving target, it continues, it moves forward. Look, the other thing that's interesting is how it connects to laziness. Not something we would think of. Yeah, maybe it connects to work, but laziness, look at this. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, verse five. This is actually taken out of and connected to several passages in Isaiah, Proverbs, and other places in the Old Testament where laziness, think about it on the other side of that. Think about how Envy and comparison can move you to just kind of throwing it. To not work, to not do things, to kind of step out of it. You know what? To kind of give up. To the other degree, envy and comparison can do that. It can, it can denigrate you. It can put you down so much that you're so one down. It's not the one up, I have to be the best. It's one down, it's like, you know what? I'm never gonna be the best, so who cares? So you begin to have a lazy heart and even begin to busy yourself with things that feed your laziness. And not going about the business of even not just working, but living life. How does it reveal that? It creates even this. It creates in the next even passages. In verse seven and eight, it says, again, I saw vanity under the sun up one person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? And depriving myself of pleasure. Envy and comparison attach themselves and create loneliness. What a great description that it it creates this world of loneliness. Think about this for a second. So many other things that we would consider sins bring us joy. They bring things to us that bring us happiness, like greed or pride or those kind of things. Envy is opposite. It sucks joy out. It actually removes. It attaches itself and begins to take all the joy out because instead of working for that, you go, for whom am I a toilet? It, 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 it removes and it makes you lonely. It makes you look around and say, if I compare myself to even my friends, then who do I have that are friends? It pushes you to be in a space and in a place where you say, does anybody really know me? See, that's the funny thing about comparison and envy, isn't it? Because we never talk about it unless we're talking about it kind of as a joke. But we don't talk about it because we feel petty or dumb when we say to one another, you know what, I'm really struggling with comparing myself to this person, this thing, this whatever. I have envy about this. I wish I was in this. And really sharing what that is because we feel like it's silly. But what are we doing when we don't do that? We're isolating ourselves. 
And as we just saw, envy rots in the bones. It goes deep. It sucks the joy out. The marrow of what you're supposed to have in life and joy, it takes it right out. And it will get in there. So many of us are having a hard time even caring. Maybe, I have to say this, let's throw out a couple diagnostic thoughts because some of us in this room may be in a place where someone we know or someone next to us walk in and we look them up and down and we thought, man, I don't, I don't feel like I'm even near as beautiful as that person or I need to be dressed up. Some of you may be seeing people singing next to you or out there, maybe they're in a Bible study or in a place or you're sitting in a room and you hear people next to you nodding or, or to a scripture passage and you think, man, I don't know where that is. Am I worthy? Does it create those parts of you? That's envy, that's comparison. Those are places where it creeps in, spiritually, physically. Where are the places in your, in your life where you have a hardest time, you cannot empathize or sympathize with somebody who shared their heart with you because you cannot get past your own comparison and envy? It gets in places and in things. It's like ivy. I remember having ivy on our house, our old house in, in Creve Hall where we lived. And man, when I began to tear that ivy off, it looks fine on the outside, but you don't know what is going on underneath. And it has ripped all of the, the parts of the brick are coming off. The mortar in between, it gets in spaces and places that when you pull it, the brick comes with it. Brick on a plant. Envy is like that. It attaches and gets in. So we need something to defeat it. We need someone to come in and do that. And I, it happens in two ways. It happens in a vertical understanding and a horizontal understanding here. Turn, if you will, in your Bible to Psalm 73. If you have a Bible or if you have your phone, the Psalms are dead in the middle. Sorry, my throat is extra dry today. Talk about sucking out joy. It's interesting, <clears throat> this Psalm, if you want a Psalm to meditate on today, maybe, you know, we, I don't suggest this enough probably from, the, from up here, but if you'd like a Psalm to think about that really talks about this meditation, of envy and comparison, Psalm 73 is your psalm. Because this is a place where David actually says what we are thinking. It begins this way, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You see what he's doing? He's, he's being honest to say that he sees those around him, even those that may or may not follow God and say, I wish I had that. I wish I was in their spot. I wish I, I could have all that they have, whether it's their bodies, whether it's no infirmities, whether it's no worries about things. Some of you may even think, man, I'm going to church. Maybe you're coming back for the first time. Maybe you're coming back several times and you think, I'm going to church. Am I just doing this thing? Is it worth it? I mean, I wish I could just sleep. I wish I could be just in a space where I didn't have to come. I don't have to worry about it. Why is this valuable? It's valuable because it forces us to look 
at the one who's the greatest, the one that we could never top, the one we sang holy, 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 that there's a vertical greatness that we have to compare ourselves to. Again, C.S. Lewis said this, and listen to what he says. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God. As long as you're proud and you, can't, you cannot know God as that. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Think about that for a moment. He's not saying we don't struggle with pride in our hearts. What he is saying is that our pride causes our eyes to fall instead of to look up. We sang this hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And the reason Holy, Holy, Holy is a beautiful hymn and it's threefold characteristic of God's holiness is that he is so separate. It's not enough to say holy. Holy, Holy, Holy means he is so other, so great, so much higher than, than we that we should be in awe, it forces us out of comparison to say, I, I can't compare. We get tastes of that in certain moments, whether it's in reality, whether we're in our job or at home or in a, in a place where we see something about someone close to us and we admire it and we go, man, that is so great. I wish I could be a part. And it's not, a, it's not an aspect of envy of like, I wanna take that from them. It's an aspect of awe that you go, man, there's something very different about them. There's an aspect of lowering yourself and seeing yourself in honesty that we have to see this vertical greatness. That's why he begins in this psalm even of saying, truly God is good to Israel. Do we know that God is good to us? That he is that vertical, that he is that high up, but yet he is so good to give you what you need and who you are. It's not a self-esteem promotion. It's actually an image promotion. It's a, you are this. You are in the image of that great God. That's who you are made. And how do you work in that place, space and not have envy? You have hope in the fact that he is greater. You have hope in the fact we come in this room and we don't worship him because we just need to, kind of go through the motions. We worship him because we have to figure out because in comparison to him and his worth, it shines light in our hearts on the envy that is, on everything else we can have in comparison. It shows light on that. I read a great article in the Atlantic that kind of summed this up well. It was called The Psychology of Healthy Facebook Use. Of course, it's throwing that out. No comparing, to other, no comparing to others' lives. How to break tendencies toward social comparison, which I didn't know this was an actual term deemed. This is interesting. Other studies have established links between Facebook and de um, depressive symptoms, but we're trying to figure out why do people feel this way, said researcher Myla Steers, a doctoral candidate in Houston who's uh, one month away from a PhD. What these two studies reveal is that the underlying mechanism is social comparison. That's why it's deemed social comparison. That's why the more we, time we spend on Facebook, the more likely we are to feel depressed. In the 50s, now I didn't realize this. Think about this. This is long before Facebook. In the 50s, a psychologist, Leon Festinger, popularized social comparison theory. 
And he argued that people have innate tendencies to track our progress and assess our self-worth by comparing ourselves to other people. Now, I, there was a link to that, and I was like, I'm so curious. So I clicked on it, went to this 15-page paper on social comparison. So I'll save you, because I scanned it, I'll give you the detail. So essentially what he says is this. We all want to be evaluated. Both stern directly from, both stem directly from the uh, drive for self-evaluation and the necessity for such evaluation being based on comparison with other persons. We are longing for self-evaluation. We want someone to tell us we're worth something. There's 15 pages summed up for you. You don't have to read it. Isn't that what we want? We want someone to say, you're worthy. It's incredible. Isn't that what he's saying? And here's the deal. We do the superior or inferior. And so what does God do that's brilliant? What does the preacher draw out here that's glorious? He brings a vertical dimension of superior and a horizontal one with friendship. In verses nine to 12, he says this, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. And he begins to list what good friendship does because friendship comes in, this godly friendship. He says good reward, that's the joy of doing labor together, actually working together. And it means actually admiration of the other person's work. See, good friendship gets in the way of comparison and envy because you can begin to admire what they have. And also, the very next part of this, when he says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. That when you fall, not if you fall, when you fall, who lifts you up? Who are the people in your life that actually pull you up out of that pit? That's the point. The whole point is, if you don't have anyone pulling you up, you need to ask yourself, you may be in a place of complete isolation and envy and comparison may have driven you there. See, friendship helps you up. It pulls you out when you are in that. And again, it says, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? This is an emotional metaphor of how are we huddling, how are we caring for one another? How are we actually digging in and caring for the needs of each other? And also the final, the even protection. It says, how are we protecting one another? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Look, protection. These are marks of friendship that get in between, that get into the cracks of the ivy of that envy and comparison and help you begin to rip those out and fill it anew. Do you have people in your life that horizontally reflect, that help you actually honestly talk about envy in, in comparison in ways that don't just give you just lighthearted self-worth talks? but point you to the one who is superior, that is our king. And here's what's amazing. That at this table, we're seeing what he did in two ways. He was not only superior, but he made himself inferior. There's a passage in Isaiah that we're gonna read in, in a few weeks during Holy Week that says this, listen. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and of one who men hid their faces. Does that sound like someone who is envied to you? This table is about the fact that God doesn't just show him as holy, holy, holy. He also shows himself as mercy, mercy, mercy. He is both. He surrounds you with his superiority because there is no way you could compare it with him. But he subverts you. He goes underneath your inferiority so you could never say you're worse because he makes himself despised. Jesus himself does that. He is the man of sorrows. He is one that people said, this is foolishness. No one wanted to follow him. And even his followers deserted him. Because he had to, he had to go beneath you. He had to make himself inferior in order for you to know your worth. He had to make his body and blood shed and given so that you could taste and see who you really are in him. That this is all the comparison you need. Here's your mirror. Here's your answer of self-worth. It's not going back and just saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm much prettier than I thought. I'm much stronger than I thought. I'm much wiser than I thought. No, you'll play that game all day long. And you can do that. And you can grow wiser and prettier and stronger and all those things. But the only way for you to know you have peace and joy is for it to be filled in by his blood and his body. Let's stand together if we will.